Welcome to Talk Commerce, where we explore how merchants, agencies, and developers experience commerce and the communities they work and live in. Don't forget to collect your free joke at the end of this intro. This week, we interview Paul Lima with Lima Consulting. We had planned on a conversation around Adobe Experience Manager, but our conversation went to business. Paul did a great job on explaining the four different types of business. Listen and learn from the wisdom that you can get from Paul and his insights on business. And now, your free joke. What did the carpenter say when he finished building his house? Nailed it. The Talk Commerce Podcast is sponsored by Swift Daughter. E-commerce developers solve problems daily. In fact, some of those seem like mountainous hurdles that must be climbed in a matter of hours. Stress levels can go through the roof. No wonder the plague of burnout affects developers too. Ah, but there's a vaccine for that. Investing time in your career will take you farther than you ever imagined. Meet Swift Daughter. Swift Daughter exists to help you become the e-commerce hero that is indispensable and irreplaceable at your company. We do this through Magento Certification Study Materials and Joseph Maxwell's most recent book, The Art of E-Commerce Debugging. Go to swiftotter.com to learn more about how you can quickly climb the ranks in your quest to be a better developer. While you're there, use the coupon code TALKCOMMERCE for 15% off any digital goods at swiftotter.com. Cloud is a new normal for companies of any size. Buying, maintaining, upgrading, and disposing of machines is expensive and complicated. Amazon Web Services, managed by eWay Corp, offers an easy-to-use, flexible, cost-effective solution to all your infrastructure needs. eWay Corp can provide a secure, reliable, scalable, high-performance network that will make your office hum. Not literally. eWay Corp has saved its customers an average of 31% on their IT costs while adding 62% to the bottom line efficiency. To top that, their customers have seen 43% fewer security incidents. Go to eWayCorp.com to learn how you can start saving money and headaches by moving to the cloud. That's E-W-A-Y-C-O-R-P dot com. My name is Brent Peterson, and I'm your host. Please remember to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts. And now, Talk Commerce. Welcome to this special content version of Talk Commerce. I have Paul Lima, the managing partner with Lima Consulting. Paul, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, tell us what you do, and maybe one of your passions in life. Oh, boy. Uh, so, well, Brent, thanks to for having me on. Really enjoyed our partnership and, and collaboration for many years now uh, with, with you and the team there at Wagento. Um, I, as you said, I'm the managing partner for Lima Consulting Group. We are a digital transformation consultancy. We do the things that typical ad agencies do, but we really are consultants first. Uh, which means that we really sit on the side of the table with those that are responsible to lead uh, digital experiences. So the the tagline that we talk about is that we help uh, the the visionaries of today create the digital experiences of tomorrow. So that's really what we do. I've got offices in Latin America and here in uh, the United States. Great. And uh, do you have any passions that you can that you can think of? I love to sing. Uh, so in, in college and in high school, junior high, I 
started playing piano when I was six and I, I write a little bit of music. I'm really bad at it, but uh, in, in high school and junior high and college and even beyond, I, I uh, sang a lot. So that was my, my two options for college was go to uh, sing and uh, become a vocal performance major or go to West Point. And uh, so I, I, I went to West Point because I didn't know if I'd, if I'd want to sing for the rest of my life. <laughs> well, isn't that a departure? West Point or vocal performance? Th those are I, my options. Yeah. <laughs> my daughter had a scholarship for, for voice as well. And, and she, uh, she went to, um, uh, to a private, private university that has a very, that's very big in choir. We, we, we're in the Midwest. So Lutherans, there are a lot of Lutheran universities. They're all big into choir. And uh, she ended up with a French, or not uh, a French. She ended up with a Spanish major. My wife has a French major. Uh, I can I speak three languages really well. I speak English, American, and Canadian. <laughs> and I struggle with Spanish, but the rest of my family speaks Spanish. So, um, yeah, anyways. Um, Paul, it's been a couple of years that we've met, since we met. And I, one thing that I can comment on is that you had a lot less hair then, and I had a lot more hair. Wait, no, I had the same amount, which was har hardly any, but I'm extremely jealous that you were able to, is this a COVID look that you have going right now? This is indeed, and uh, I've actually finally decided to, to uh, I'm sure my, my business partner's gonna probably be very happy uh, to, to clean up the look here. My military friends, are, well, I went up to the West Point uh, football game the other day, and I. I realized in that stadium of 40,000, I was the only mop head in the entire stadium. So maybe I need to get with the program. Yeah. So for those <laughs> are, who are only on the podcast, Paul has long streaming rock star hair uh, that anybody would be extremely jealous about. Uh, my son, who is also a musician, um, has long, has shoulder length hair that is curly and, and any any anybody man or woman would be extremely jealous of his hair but anyways we didn't we didn't really come to talk about hair uh today um uh i i was interested in in our pre-talk in our greenwood talk about the four business models and we had some discussions around what is commerce and what is e-commerce and my my challenge to everybody has been why do you have a website why do you have marketing? What do you do with marketing? Are you marketing something you don't want to sell? And if you don't want to sell it, why are you marketing it? Is it, is it just for the fun of it? And so, uh, Paul, you had, some, uh, you had some great thoughts around these, these four business models. So let's dive into those uh, right now. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is, you know, at our core, why we, we think of ourselves as consultants first, because when we think about marketing, there's, you know, marketing may be among the most strategic of all the disciplines in business. Uh, and it, if you really, you know, define marketing to, you know, digital marketing or what have you, billboards or advertising or what have you, well, there's one that's marketing operations. But marketing strategy is what do you sell and why are you selling it and to whom? Uh, and you get into the things like the four Ps and sometimes people call them the five Ps with product, price, place, promotion. Some people add process to that, but there's so much innovation happening in business model innovation today. And, it, and that's where you say, okay, well, how, how do you define a business model and what are they? And at that point, we can come back to your question about 
is there anything that you would want to sell that you wouldn't market or vice versa, right? So the four business models are, 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 are here. The, the first is I can create a, a, a scenario where I sell, and then we'll, just, we'll just bring this back to digital. I can create a website to sell products or a marketplace where products are sold. The second is the, the service corollary. So I can create a website to sell services or a place where services are sold. So that would even include things like lead gen, lead gen websites, like maybe, um, uh, what's the one from uh, the, the mortgage broker? Uh, when you go and you fill out the form and 90 mortgage brokers call you. Uh, so the um, lending tree. So that would even fall in, in that category with services. The third is I can sell experiences. And experiences can happen inside of the walls of Fortnite or a video game or inside the walls of a hotel or inside an airplane or even inside a, um, a, a theme park. So experiences are really broad. And then the fourth one is you can sell your audience. Like EA Sports sells their audience with the in-game advertising once you're in, uh, in the game. So those are really the broadest levels of categories. And then within there, we've identified at Lima about 64 business models that go underneath those four high level categories. So list all 64 right now. Yeah. No, I'm joking, <laughs> sorry. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's super interesting. Um, I think that people uh, often associate only e-commerce with commerce. And one thing that has happened in the last 18 months is the people that were only doing commerce or retail, some of those people either went out of business or they started doing e-commerce. A lot of them have now blurred the line between the two, either buy online, pick up in the store or pick or go into the store and it's not there and you buy online and it's shipped to your house. There's all kinds of mixtures in that. So I think that's one of the things I'm trying to get to that that doesn't mean commerce is always e-commerce, but commerce is commerce. And um, the, the what we're trying to do from a marketing standpoint is help people understand that if you're selling something, well, let, let me just say, if you're marketing something, you should be selling something. And I know from, so we've been in the Magento space for a long time. And, you know, five or six years ago, I met a, a, a local business person. He, he ran a marketing agency and they were doing digital campaigns for, for people in, in the Twin Cities areas. And I said, hey, have you ever thought about collaborating with us to try to get people to buy stuff online? My clients don't sell anything online. That's what his answer was. Why would we talk to, why would, I don't care about Magento. So fast forward to 2020, suddenly everybody has to sell things online. Yeah, and I think when you talk about like Bopis, buy online, pick up in store, or some of these other models within e-commerce, those are extensions of business model one, right? Which was I sell products or I have a marketplace where products are sold, right? So that's the first one. But what I'm really starting to see now is, is true innovation, where companies, to your point, that may historically been in the services business are jumping and using financial business models. What is a business model? It's a way to make money, 
not a way to save money. That's an operating model. So the fact that when I, my very first place that I remember getting online was Bank of America sent me a three, a five inch disc and they wanted me to bank online. That's a way to save money. It wasn't a way to make money. And that way they could reduce the cost per transactions by having me do it online rather than having all those tellers. Operating model. Business model is a way to make money. And what you're seeing is tremendous blurring of the lines in innovation around business models. So let's take, for example, Panera. Of the four models we talked about, where's Panera, right? They sell a, a service, or you could argue they sell an experience, like Starbucks would argue they sell an experience. Um, and there's some interesting stories, maybe we'll come back to that one, about the evolution from commodities to services to experience uh, and then the modern economy. Uh, but one of the things that I wanted to point out is Panera has started allowing some of their users or, or, or constituents to subscribe to their coffee for $8.99 a month. So all of a sudden, yeah, you can come in and, and have a, 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 a transaction which may we, you know, allow you to use the Panera loyalty app, but now we're going to change that transaction and elevate it to a relationship because it's $8.99 a month, and I'm going to try and get you in that store with unlimited coffee for that $8.99 a month. You say, well, that may work for them, but they're, they're zany. Well, let's take a look at cars, right? What did Volvo recently do about a year ago? They offered not a lease, but a subscription to Volvo. And what you get for that subscription is the ability to change out and swap out the model of the car. Hey, this month I want an SUV. Next month I want a coup or a two-door. And so there's, there's a, another example where product companies are innovating and doing subscription models, right? So there's, and, and the blurring of these traditional lines of commerce is, is really, uh, it's really changing now. Yeah, it's interesting. And subscription has always been a part of e-commerce. Uh, and those things that subscriptions have always driven the ability for merchants to get a stable sales plat or a stable sales um, um, model that helps them to uh, sell, have a, have a base to always sell from. So I think that again, is just helping, helping, um, helping the merchant or helping that seller uh, to um, to grow in, in their, in whatever vertical they're in. Yeah. There's so many benefits to having the rev, the revenue from a subscription model. It, it, it provides to your point, more certainty in cyclical businesses. Um, and uh, it, it really also allows you to see, particularly when product businesses do this, um, really allows you to see the, the, the analytics of how folks are really engaging with your brand in new ways. And with that data, you should be able to better personalize and offer segmented offers and messaging that's much more relevant for those user needs. Yeah, and uh, just to plug, plug Adobe here, um, <laughs> the, the blurring of between Adobe commerce and Adobe experience manager and Adobe target and, and all the other, uh, products that Adobe is putting into their suite is helping clients do that very well. That's my 32nd commercial for Adobe. <laughs> yeah. 
And and as you know, we're we're I think that's how we actually connected is we're, we're Adobe Gold partners and we found ways to collaborate uh, as well in, in our own businesses uh, with with you, Brent, and and really enjoyed that. And I think that you know for us, we came into the Adobe world in 2006 when it was Omniture, and Omniture was purchased by Adobe. So we were we were coming at it always from the analytics perspective, and really when when you ask yourself, well, how do you really create today a competitive, sustainable advantage online? I mean, you, one could argue that any website that goes up could be easily reverse engineered, right? But what is it about that, ex that digital experience that would be sustainable, that is not able to be reverse engineered? And I would argue that that's the customer data. And that customer data is probably more valuable than anything in your company other than your people, right? And, and, and so if, if that's true, let's work with me here. If that's true, what do we do when someone goes to the point of sale and collects a quarter or a dollar? Do we leave it around on the desk on the third floor or in our hard drive? Well, if our data is really important, why is it so distributed from, you know, the sales conference I went to, I got 50 business cards. And then the next guy, you know, sponsored an event and all and, and, and at, at, at a trade show. And he got, you know, the 30,000 attendees of the event. And all those are in people's hard drives. They're on their, their cell phones. They're, they're printed out in folders. Where's the centralization so that we can do near real-time decisioning and collect and consolidate that data just like we do with our money, right? And I think this is where when we start really making that analogy uh, about the value of data and creating a sustainable competitive advantage, you can't reverse engineer that. That's only your data. And it's only becoming more important with all the regulatory shifts and the changes in consumer preferences around privacy. No, I think you you hit it right on the head there. Um, anybody can crawl a website, uh, and they can they can get they could they could duplicate a website by crawling it exactly. But what they can't do is like what just what you brought up is segmentation based on your customer, and uh, and having that customer having a different experience on your website based on who they are what they purchased, what their click behavior is, or whatever that means. Um, we've all used, well, we haven't all used Amazon, but let's just say I mean, a lot of us use Amazon. And um, we, we get a different experience on Amazon based on what we do. Facebook, any of those, any of those platforms is, is the exact same way. In fact, on, on Twitter, I purposefully never click on any political ads because it drives me absolutely crazy. And it's amazing how much less you get in suggestions if you never click on it as compared to clicking on one. It's like clicking on one gives you suddenly a flood of 20 different things that they want you to look at. If you never click on it, then you'd still get a few that filter in, but no, it's the it's much easier to live your life than if you don't do that behavior. Most people don't consciously think about that. They just are clicking around and doing whatever. Um, 
Uh, Facebook is a good example of if you were to click on an ad on Facebook, they're suddenly going to start sending you more of those types of ads, which, uh, which sometimes can drive you crazy. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, this concept of using um, social media to target, you know, there's, there's so much innovation going on there. And one of the things that we may want to talk briefly about is, is how to really do that responsibly, how to do it ethically. What does that process look like? And you really, it starts with developing a persona, generally using some design thinking to do that. And, you know, I, I see... I remember, I remember in my grad program for my master's, we had a, I took a product development course and, and, you know, the whole course was really summarized by, you know, build what people want. And how do you know what they want? Ask them. So, well, that's all well and good, but when you're starting out, I agree with all that, but I can't tell you how many of our customers, big and small, fortune 500s, little tiny outfits, they'll start with qualitative and quantitative initiatives for market research firms. I think that's a big mistake. You've been waking, how long have you been thinking about doing this? Have you got any hypotheses? Have you documented them? How do you know what questions to ask when you get people into the, to the focus group? What survey questions are you going to ask? So if you're going to start spending a lot of money on market research, my suggestion is Get your team together, probably filled with a bunch of really experienced folks that have been waking up and going to bed and dreaming about how to solve that particular problem. And if you haven't documented it within your own persona or maybe a customer journey map and started out with what are the demographics, I'll give you how we do it. What are the demographics? What are the technographics? What are the geographics? What are the firmographics if it's B2B? And what are the psychographics? And then what are the behavioral uh, characteristics? Things that you can observe, either through digital analytics or if you were standing outside a store or in the store with them, things you could observe. So that's behavioral. And when you put all that down on paper, you'd be surprised at how much of a hypothesis you're able to build within those personas, right? And I think then you go to market, do your 1.0, and then you're in a position to spend the money on market research for both qualitative and quantitative research. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that, those are great points. I know that I was in a meeting with a client and they were talking about how they can convert their MQLs or marketing qualified leads into SQLs right now into sales qualified leads. Everything just goes to sales and, uh, and, you know, building out a persona to help understand when somebody's going to buy something and when a salesperson should reach out to somebody and what volume of incoming makes it not not able not makes a salesperson not able to respond back and should they respond back because at some point it's a waste of time to try to hit everybody that's coming at you um those are i mean a persona is a great way to build that out and also then your persona, the more that more you do that, the more that persona becomes valid. So you test it again and again to make sure that that persona is something that meets what, what your de definition of that persona is. And then as you go, your persona, your persona will grow and change. It'll, yeah, it'll and there's better and bigger and, and more relevant. 
more relevant. So the persona, there's, there's, there's several areas of it, you know, so we talked about how do you identify them and then you have to figure out what is the messaging? So we're working now with an insurance company and they wanted to go after in one case, a very skilled immigrant that had come to the United States. And in another persona we identified was someone who was stepping up, right? They, they were, they were wanting to improve their life situation. And you know you have a great persona when the messaging is radically different. If not, you can go with one persona. But if the marketing message isn't different, you can bundle those in the same persona. So in this case, you know, the skilled immigrant, you know, they may have an accent. And I heard once that if you have an accent and you live in another country, obviously, it's a symbol of bravery. That that was a beautiful concept. So someone who's taken that risk like, hey, you know what? This particular marketing message that we're using there is you adapted, and so have we. We're the insurance company for you, right? Versus the other one that's stepping up, and they may have had a family member that, that was a good mentor for them. They want to stand up and, and improve their life situation. There's some values around the family life that, that, that they want to honor, right? So for them, that message is, you know, you need to protect your hustle. You need to protect the income stream, and that's why you need the insurance policy. So those messages, if crossed, are going to fall on deaf ears, and that's how you know you've got a great persona is when the marketing messaging can really speak to the amygdala. If you're not getting into the fear or the flight or the fight part of the brain, you haven't finished working your marketing messages. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Um, I'll make sure that one gets in the show notes. <laughs> um, uh, so we've talked about products and services. What's your third and fourth? The third one is selling experiences. And then the fourth is selling audience. And for the longest time, I used to say it was publishers and advertisers, but there's too many other business models that have, have crept into that. So let's go back to the third one, which is experiences. And I'll give you the, um, the story from a, an author I love a lot. His name is Jim Gilmore. He wrote The Experience Economy. You might have read it, Brent. And uh, he walks through coffee, and he tells us the history of coffee. He spends some time storytelling about what was the economic value of a bag of coffee coming out of Brazil. Frank Sinatra sang a song. There's an awful lot of coffee in Brazil, right? And basically, from the time that Brazil started shipping coffee, that is a commodity. And that was our first industry, largely agriculturally, an agricultural basis. So that value of the coffee was about a penny. Commodity. Then, in early part of the 1900s, they figured out, Folgers in particular, how to can that burlap sack of coffee and put it in a can and start selling it and marketing it. And if you think back about those old tin coffee cans of Folgers, it was very early on. And what we did is we converted a commodity into a product that had a brand like Folgers and packaging and began to follow in, in line with the four P's of product price, place, and promotion. So that was the product economy. And that got us all the way up until about the 1940s. 
And the average price for that can today's dollars, if, if a penny was for the commodity, we we went up to ten cents for the for the Folgers can of coffee. About the 1940s, we moved to the third level of our economy, which up which really has continued all the way up through uh, about the late 1990s. And that is the service economy. And in the service economy, what really started proliferating across the United States in the early 1940s was something called a diner. And then when Eisenhower became president, he invented the basically the, the suburb when he rolled out the interstate highway system that we know today. So if you're on the interstate with the blue symbol on it, you're on one of Eisenhower's fabrications of the highway. And with that came the proliferation of services and diners and particularly the ability to provide services in something that was larger than just the local general store. So there's our service economy. Go into a diner, how much do you pay for the coffee? A dollar. You see the pattern here? Ten, a penny, 10 cents a dollar. So what Jim Gilmore wrote in the, in the mid-90s is a book called The Experience Economy. That's the fourth level. And in, in about the mid-1990s, we started seeing things like the Nike store. Well, they were selling products, but you go in the, in the Times Square and you could uh, play basketball in there. And every now and again, they'd bring in superstars and you might be able to actually have a little one-on-one -on -one with you know, the NBA stars of the day. So along with Universal Studios and all of the theme parks that we, we've always had, many brands wanted to jump on the bandwagon of the experience economy, including Starbucks. Back to coffee. So Starbucks will tell you that they want to create the, uh, what is it, the third, the third place of comfort or something like that. Uh, I, I forget what the, what, what the, exactly the language but the concept is you have your house, you have your work, and then you have your third place, uh, which is Starbucks. And it's, it's, not a, it's, it's inside the walls of the experience. So average ticket of Starbucks, let's keep following, a penny for the commodity, 10 cents for Folgers, a dollar for the diner, $10 for Starbucks. Ask people who work at Starbucks the average ticket price, just a couple pennies shy of $10. So there you have the experience economy in, in a nutshell. And where we're going now is the transformation economy. And that's what's next. So don't just give me an experience, but give me an experience that changes the core of who I am, right? And when you look at the, the proliferation of things, everything from yoga to this concept of all these educational classes being uh, ubiquitous and free and being able to really change who we are and learning about look at all these these trends around meditation and things like that this is the next part of the economy is these experiences that are really designed to improve the very essence of who we aspire to be so there's the the the, the five dimensions of the economy in, in a little bit of a nutshell and you can imagine the the order of magnitude for those would be in the order of hundreds of dollars right so that that order of magnitude just keeps going, increasing with every one of these different levels of the economy. Yeah, I would, in, I would invite you to visit Kona to a coffee farm and buy a bag of coffee there. And it is exponentially more expensive than any coffee you're going to buy anywhere in the world. Uh, so yes, I, I agree that, uh, that, uh, I, that that's a great analogy. And I, that's perfect. 
from the experience economy, I would add that Ironman is a great example of how an experience is sold as a brand. And uh, my wife has said that when she does her first Ironman, she's going to get a tattoo. And then she said, well, I don't know if I want a logo of a tattoo on my body, like a company logo. And I know when I first got into the Magento community, um, people talked about, would you want to get a Magento logo? And for that, I absolutely not. I don't want a Magento logo on my body because who knows, maybe eBay will buy them or maybe Adobe will buy them. And, <laughs> and suddenly you have a defunct logo on your body. Um, but uh, that experience, uh, I, I think, especially in, you know, if, if it's, uh, if it's one of the, um, uh, the runs where you go through ob obstacles and things like that, or if it's an Ironman or if it's a marathon, they're selling that experience. But I think that Ironman has done a specifically good job on branding a triathlon and making that something bigger than most people can think about. And that experience that they sell has put that has, has, broadened into everything which includes uh which includes material clothing and and bikes and and anything that you can imagine like hoka hoka running shoes there's a yeah. there's an iron man version of it so I, I think that you're exactly right on how somebody has taken the concept of just doing an exercise and then they branded it and now suddenly the actual um products have taken that brand and that that suddenly adds value and they have made their experience a actual sellable product that has gone up in price over and over again you know and you we, we could obviously talk about peloton and what um, the guys who make the nordic track uh, you know are the same thing i mean taking a, a bicycle uh, which is clearly a product and when you talk to them about the revenue and you look at, you know, there was recently a leak of the Peloton uh, VC deck that they had been using out. Uh, and I got a chance to look at that. It's, you can Google it and find it now. And, and really it's about exactly what you're saying, Brent, about experiences. And, but what, and so, and it's a subscription model for a bicycle, a product, but then you, and, and the, in the degree of relationship and, you know, the, the, the degree of loyalty, it happens when you provide an experience that aligns with your segment, even if it's a small segment, it can be amazing. And that's why some people are, you know, evangelical about their Apple product, right? Or what have you. But I want to point out again, going back to this notion of business model innovation, let's go back to airplane engines, right? GE uh, it, it was, you know, historically the largest seller of, of airplane engines. And what's bigger, GE's airplane engine or their financing program for the airplane engines? Financing. Right? It's the financing part. And that's why you have GP, GE Capital, which for people in financial services, if you came out of GE Capital, that's like going to Harvard. That's like coming out of Goldman or, or McKinsey, right? GE Capital is, is, is elite. So and the point there is they, they were able to find other ways to leverage innovation in terms of what they were doing rather than simply manufacturing a product. And I think that's the point that I want to leave you with today is no matter what four business models you're in, don't feel like you have to continue charging only in those ways. Right. And, and I have another example 
we do a lot of work with Tyson Foods. And there's a lot of discussion about 3D printing and what's happening in the digital future. Will it be that one day a job title, a matter of fact, just yesterday, Wednesday night, Bank of America had a great piece of research. And uh, they, 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 they talk about the 15 or 16 moonshot technologies of the future. And in part of that, one of those was 3D printing. And what they were talking about is jobs that haven't been invented yet, but that might be. One of those jobs might be the chef in the back of a house of a restaurant that's responsible to print the meat, to print the meat. And if you think about the average distance that the food travels on most restaurants, take a wild guess, Brent. How far is the average distance that what is served in a restaurant travels to make it to your plate? Just give me a number. Yeah, I'm sure it's based on where you are in the country, but it's probably about a thousand miles for the Midwest. Exactly. It's 1,600 miles. Oh, that's crazy. And so, you know, if you think about the energy just to heat water, it's, you know, within the laundry world. That's the biggest, about 90% of the energy that, that to do your laundry in your home is just to heat the water. And it's the same thing with, with the food. The, the largest part of the energy in the whole chain isn't to feed the cow or isn't to, to uh, package and, and, and prepare the food. It's to get it to your plate. So 3D printing could solve that. And I think that this is where, well, if we're going to be digitally producing our meat in the future... And this isn't short or long-term. This is what we call future term. So beyond 10 years out. But, you know, Roy Amara was one of the uh, futurists that I really admire. And he created the, the, um, the Institute for the Future. And there's something called Amara's Law. I don't know if you've heard this. Uh, but he said that we have a tendency to overestimate what technology can do in the short term. And to underestimate technology's impact in the long term. So if we're not thinking about laying the digital foundation now, when 3D printing comes out in 15 years, and it's the, or, or even think about autonomous driving and what's happening now and where we're going to be in 10 to 15 years, these trends are coming the way that the cell phone, right? If you think back 10 or 15 years ago, right, where were we with our cell phones? And I remember in grad school in 2001, I wrote a paper about the convergence of the wallet the GPS and the phone. And I don't even carry my wallet when I get out of the car anymore. I pay everything on Apple pay. It happened 15 years, right? we got the iPhone 13 now. Uh, so where are we going to be in 13 years from now? And when we're as old as you and I, are, we're talking about our kids in college and, and getting married now, 13 years, 15 years, isn't that far. So if we're not laying the groundwork now, uh, we'll be flat footed when these other digital exponential technologies begin to come of age. Yeah, and I think we see it growing exponentially, uh, and that's what we're—that's what our future is going to be guaranteed with. Uh, to, talking about the Institute of the Future, I didn't make an appointment to see them in six months. That was a joke. Never mind. <laughs> I got um, it. Yeah. say I'm a little slow, Brent, but I got it's, it. Nobody gets my jokes. It's all right. <laughs> I try not to say, and I try not to say any anymore. Uh, that's Paul. That, that's incredibly insightful. I, I appreciate that. Um, 
So we have a little bit of time left still. Um, what, what sort of things are you reading personally to kind of keep up with a lot of this? Oh boy. Uh, you know, I, I, I do a lot of reading. I just finished um, uh, Surveillance Economy, uh, which was fantastic. Uh, there's a great book called The Fourth Industrial Revolution written by the gentleman who founded the World Economic Forum. And he walks through a lot of the digital future. Uh, I love anything from Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamantes, Abundance, Singularity University, Alvin Toffler with, uh, you know, the Future Shock. I, I read that about a year ago. Finally got my my hands into that one. So I consider myself a little bit of a, I guess, a, a wannabe futurist. Um, but it, it's just so important uh, to to understand our history so we can start predicting and forecasting with with a higher degree of certainty when do we need to be ready with some of these other trends? Um, and then I just launched a podcast called The Digital Future, uh, where I talk a little bit about these kinds of issues and topics and bring in guests uh, that are researching, uh, you know, e either, either anthropologists or, or historical figure or people that are evaluating history so that we can look into the future and begin predicting um, a lot of these mega trends that are, uh, pervasive now. I mean, when you talk about exponential growth, I mean, whether we're talking about Moore's law or even Bentford's law um, and some of these other methodologies that we're, we're using to understand when technologies are going to actually be able and commercial, commercializable, we can really start predicting that with a high degree of accuracy. It's the closest thing to a crystal ball I've ever seen. Yeah, that's, um, that's good insight. I appreciate that. Um, if you were to, if you had some advice for a merchant right now, and maybe some advice even to the end of the year, but I think some better advice of where the future may be for merchants, what would you tell them? Well, the only sustainable competitive advantage that is pervasive across all of these business, business models and all industries, no matter what you're selling, is really an understanding of the customer. Now, we could have said that in 1810, or we can say that now in 2021, but that fundamental insight of who we are as humans, it hasn't really changed. What's changed is our ability to collect data and use it responsibly, and then really, just like a good friend, be able to make relevant recommendations. And so a lot of people say, ah, pay-per-click doesn't work, or I never click on the ads. I know what the ads are. I never click on them. Well, you're an N of one, but people generally think that other folks hate marketing. And I would say that's not true. I think that the general population loves relevant marketing. And when it's relevant, you're helping me the way a friend would, because you know me the way my friends do. So what that means is really investing in your customer relationship management, really figuring out how to begin investing in personalization and really segment the right message for the right audience at the right time in the right channel. And that's hard to do, whether you're big or small, it, it really requires some engineering. It requires the marketing discipline to be thought of as a science as opposed to an art, right? And, uh, and you need to go at it slowly to be able to look and, and watch what's happening and learn and set up those analytics programs so you can really begin to test and learn. And it's amazing the insights 
you know, and how quickly those returns can come back. But that's the advice I'd give is to truly try to be helpful in your content that you're producing for each of your segments. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just say something from the analytics world. If you're not measuring it, you don't know it. And if you don't know it, you're flying blind. So yeah, you, whatever you're trying to do content-wise, if you're just sticking stuff out there for the sake of sticking stuff out there and you're never measuring it, um, then you don't really know where you're going. You have an idea, but it's sort of like flying a plane in the clouds without any instruments. You know, Brent, we have a, a, a free downloadable little ebook about how to manage your, um, your digital transformation in your first 90 days. And on that same landing page, there's another offering that we have on how to create your editorial calendar. And there's an Excel template that a business user could use to begin to draft what is it that they're going to write about by segment over a 12-month period. So given that we're moving, most companies are doing their annual planning for 2022, this might be a great time to check that landing page out. We can give it to you in the show notes um, as just a, you know, a, a way to help folks to really begin to think about the cyclicality of the content that they need to be able to push at the right time. Yeah, good. Yeah, absolutely. We'll get that in the show notes. Um, so as as I close out my episodes, I always like to give people a chance to do a shameless plug. So uh, what is it that you would like to plug today? Yeah, you know, over the we, we've been uh, man, I, I've, I've, I started the Lima Consulting Group in 2004. So uh, over the years, we've really been focusing on digital transformation or digital consulting and digital strategy. And as organizations are generally now, particularly this time of season, working through their annual planning, what we've developed is a series of offerings to help companies large and small to really put together their annual plan around the four pillars, which is how do I organize my people? What are the processes that drive the value and the cost of my business and document those? Because if you can't document them, you can't digitize them. The third one is the platforms. Well, what MarTech and AdTech and other technology should we be uh, deploying? And then the fourth is the performance. How am I doing relative to my benchmark competitors? If any of those four areas are areas that you're thinking about, please give us a call. That is the core of our digital transformation maturity model. We'd love to help you out. Great. Thank you. And I'll plug uh, Entrepreneurs Organization, and there's a uh, a system in which you can run your business is called Entrepreneur's Operating System, EOS. And uh, that for us has been transformational in, in the simple idea that you, uh, you, add, you, add a, you assign a number to everybody, you track everything, you plan everything, um, and you keep, the L10 meeting is one example of, uh, you start on time, end on time, you structure your meeting in a certain way, uh, it has been, again, for us, transformational in how we run our business. Nothing to do with what I do for a living, but it, uh, from a transform, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, it's it's very helpful. It's based on um, on the Rockefeller habits. Gina Wickman wrote a book called Traction. Anyways, completely off the subject. And anyway, so Paul, thank you today. I think it, I, I had envisioned we would be talking more about Adobe Analytics and Adobe Experience Manager, but this has been far more interesting. I think for everybody <laughs> than to drone on about Adobe products. 
I did get my 30 second plug in, even though Adobe will never pay me. However, uh, it is this, this, this has been a much more uh, richer uh, conversation than I had expected. So thank you very much. Great. Well, glad to, to meet uh, and exceed expectations, Brent. Get to do that uh, maybe once out of 100. So uh, this is good. <laughs> yep. Uh, Paul Lima is the managing partner of Lima Consulting. And uh, he can be found at limaconsultinggroup.com, correct? Yeah, uh, that or limaconsulting.com is where we are online. Yeah. Great. Perfect. Thank you. Have a, have a great weekend. Thanks, Brent. This was a pleasure. The Talk Commerce Podcast is sponsored by Swift Daughter. E-commerce developers solve problems daily. In fact, some of those seem like mountainous hurdles that must be climbed in a matter of hours. Stress levels can go through the roof. No wonder the plague of burnout affects developers too. Ah, but there's a vaccine for that. Investing time in your career will take you farther than you ever imagined. Meet Swift Daughter. Swift Daughter exists to help you become the e-commerce hero that is indispensable and irreplaceable at your company. We do this through Magento Certification Study Materials and Joseph Maxwell's most recent book, The Art of E-Commerce Debugging. Go to swiftotter.com to learn more about how you can quickly climb the ranks in your quest to be a better developer. While you're there, use the coupon code TALKCOMMERCE for 15% off any digital goods at swiftotter.com. Cloud is a new normal for companies of any size. Buying, maintaining, upgrading, and disposing of machines is expensive and complicated. Amazon Web Services, managed by eWay Corp, offers an easy-to-use, flexible, cost-effective solution to all your infrastructure needs. eWay Corp can provide a secure, reliable, scalable, high-performance network that will make your office hum. Not literally. Eway Corp has saved its customers an average of 31% on their IT costs while adding 62% to the bottom line efficiency. To top that, their customers have seen 43% fewer security incidents. Go to eWayCorp.com to learn how you can start saving money and headaches by moving to the cloud. That's E-W-A-Y-C-O-R-P.com. Thank you again for listening. My name is Brent Peterson, and it has been my pleasure to be your host today. Please rate and subscribe to Talk Commerce, new shows out every week.